Welcome to Gen Z Money, episode 30. I think it's really, um, this financial coaching industry is so um, similar to like fitness, right? So you, um, if you don't put in the work to get fit yourself, it's never going to happen. It doesn't matter how many personal training sessions you show up to, you know, they're going to be your accountability coach and check in with you and show you their tricks and things that have worked for them and their clients. But, um, at the end of the day, the person who sees the benefits is the person who it puts in the work, not just the person who signs up for coaching or personal training. Even if my jokes aren't funny, my tongue tied up on it, and I don't need to speak a single word, cause you got me holding, What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Gen Z Money Podcast, where we turn financial peace to your reality. I'm your host, James Bowman, and today I talk to Allie, who is half of the Financial Intentions group. Uh, Her and her sister created this group, this business to help not only educate, but also coach and inspire people to start their financial independence journey and work their way through. And me and Allie, we talk about a whole bunch of different things from having divorced parents. We talk about student loan debts. We talk about ways of avoiding student loan debts. I mean, we go through so many different topics that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this interview and I don't want to spoil it too much. Uh, Her sister did not join us on this interview, but I'm going to have her sister on in the future to tell her story and to give her personal finance tips. But without further ado, guys, let's just jump right into the interview. Before we get into the interview, let's hear a quick word from today's show sponsors. What's going on, Allie? Welcome to the Gen Z Money Podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good, great. I'm so happy to be here. No, really, the pleasure is all mine. I really appreciate you coming on today to share your story. Um, We linked up on Instagram. We both follow each other. and You're always making reels and TikTok videos and things like that to kind of take the well, let's just say the heavy weight off of personal finances and start making it fun for people to be able to relate to. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's exactly the intent. Cause I think a lot of people are really like intimidated by personal finance and all things money. So we're just trying to lighten it up a little bit while still being like helpful and educational. Absolutely. And your, your Instagram, and of course we're going to reference it a lot later, but you're the financial intentions, Instagram, you're half of it. You and your sister kind of do it. Yes. 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 Yeah. We are financial intentions with Allie and Charlie is our, our full business name. And so I'm half of that. Like you said, I'm Allie. (laughs) And that is awesome. And of course we will have your sister on in the future. She had some things coming up, big life events and wouldn't want her to miss it for the world. So I look forward to having her on and maybe even having a show with both of you guys on in the future, yeah. if that's what it comes to. Yeah, good idea. So Allie, let's go ahead and jump back to the beginning. Let's go to little Allie in fifth grade, right? <laughs> okay. How was money talked about and viewed as you grew up? 
Um, well, so little Allie had divorced parents and I bring that up because we had two different households that really shaped our, um, money. So our, our views of everything, but of course views of money being one of them at, um, my dad and my stepmom's house, we were given an allowance, like a weekly allowance when we were there for doing some chores and stuff. And, um, my stepmom especially was like super diligent about, teaching us that that was our money. And so if there was ever, ever anything that we wanted to buy or wanted to spend money on, and it was not our birthday or not um, a holiday or something, then she would always be like, oh, do you have your allowance? <laughs> and so that kind of like helped us learn like some really basics at a young age about managing our money. Um, and then at uh, my mom and my stepdad's house, we didn't have an allowance, but they're both entrepreneurs. And I bring that up because I think entrepreneurs just like openly talk more about money, or at least in my experience. Um, and so even from a young age, my stepdad was always talking to us about compounding interest and he's a little Dave Ramsey-esque. So he's, you know, debt is bad, like that sort of thing. So kind of grew up with two different households, if that makes sense, with two different methodologies that I think really, really shaped myself and my siblings. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so it doesn't sound as though they were conflicting. No, no, different, but not necessarily conflicting. Yeah. My um, stepdad, I'm sorry, my stepmom and my dad, they, um, money was always a little bit tighter for them. And they, especially when there was four of us in college at once, um, but they didn't really talk about it. Whereas like my um, stepdad and my mom did openly talk about money more. So that was a big difference, but um, yeah, I would say they were complimentary actually. Okay. And then, so since you had both perspectives, because uh, I, I encounter this a lot where, where there are, where money can sometimes be a little bit more stringent in the household. They try to keep that money stress off of their children, where it seems as though one household, like if your entrepreneurship household had a problem with money, everybody knew they were very transparent, <laughs> right. but the other household, you know, it was kind of like, don't stress the kids out, right? They have other things to worry about. Which Definitely. do you yeah. think was more beneficial? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, if there could like strike a balance somewhere in the middle would be the most beneficial because being in the dark about our parents' struggles with money um, was helped us like when we became teenagers, we were not really able to be sympathetic about that. It was like, well, how come I can't do this club soccer or how come I can't get you know the latest and greatest, fill in the blank. Um, and we were kind of sassy about that occasionally, you know, or we could be like, I think a lot of teenagers are. And so we could have been more sympathetic or understanding if they had just been open about what was going on. Um, whereas on the flip side, my, in the other house, um, my mom and my stepdad were kind of the opposite because they were so aggressively paying off debt. They had some investment properties and business related debt too. And they were just so aggressive about paying that off um, at a very accelerated timeline that they uh, sometimes made it feel like we were more strapped for cash than that household actually was, if that makes sense. So um, I guess my answer is if striking a balance somewhere in the middle, being somewhat transparent, but not 
a guilt trip sort of thing would be, I think helpful. It depends on the age too, because if they're young, like you said, go back in time, like I was a fifth grader, that's kind of young, but a a middle school age teenager, they can definitely um, understand more. Yeah, I I 100% agree on that. I think that there is a very fine balance because uh, when there is struggles, money, especially money struggles, um, you want it, you want to try and make it a teachable moment. And I, I'm not a, I'm not in a, uh, I was going to say I'm not an adult. I'm, I'm not a parent. So I don't, I don't quite understand that balance yet between letting your children know about finances, how, how much to get them involved in it. But I do know enough to say like, you cannot keep them 100% shunned out because Mm -hmm. then if you're making mistakes, they're not going to be able to learn from your mistakes and they're going to end up uh, repeating your mistakes as they grow up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I am a parent. We have um, two young boys, uh, almost four-year-old and almost two-year-old. So they're too young, I think, to, to really like let them know if there was a financial, you know, uh, a negative financial situation going on. But as they got older, I I think we would talk more about it if that were to happen. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about, um, once you turn 18, you move out, you have to make big decisions, like Mm -hmm. getting a car, going to college, credit card debt, you know, all these things that the normal person runs into. Mm-hmm. Were you running into these things as you got older? Were your parents kind of helping you navigate away from some of these crippling financial mistakes? Yeah, I think I definitely had, like I had mentioned, my stepdad was, is Dave Ramsey-esque. He uh, definitely was always talking to us about like, use, treat your credit card like a debit card, meaning like, don't spend money on it if you don't have the money in the bank to pay it off. And so we kind of always, I always had that in the back of my head. So I never really got into a credit card debt situation, but, um, I did have student loans to pay off, especially because I did uh, graduate school right after my undergrad. And so I had some student loans from that to pay off, but it wasn't something I had to deal with right away when I was 18, when I was 18 and the whole time while I was in college until I was 23, I was just in charge of kind of managing my own mini college budget, which is is uh, very small and manageable compared to a, a grown-up <laughs> budget, I guess you could say. Gotcha, gotcha. So um, how did you, because if your parents were Dave Ramsey, a, a big component of Dave Ramsey is like no student loan debt ever, right? So yeah. were your parents kind of like, Allie, I really wouldn't do this if I were you, or were they kind of like, look, you have to you know, make your own decisions, you have to make your own mistakes, or how was that conversation navigated, if it even did happen? Yeah, so um, my mom and my stepdad um, talked to us about making sure we picked a college that uh, was, I guess, had the right price or was worth it to us. And so we were on the hook for one third of our college expenses. So our parents were still super generous, obviously they helped us with two thirds, but I think that one third of our own responsibility for undergrad after that post-grad was hundred percent us, but having, um, being responsible for one third, I think is, was 
a blessing that I did not recognize at the time because it helped me pick a certain state school instead of this other expensive private school that I got into. And I worked the whole time I was in college to pay off my one third while I was in college instead of take on debt for that. Um, but they did uh, kind of caution me a little bit if the master's degree was worth it because of the debt I was going to take on for that. But they weren't as uh, pushy about that because I think they were just happy I'd already graduated with my bachelor's degree at that point. Gotcha. And then what did you end up getting your master's degree in? Um, I have a master's in business administration with an emphasis in accounting because my bachelor's degree is in accounting. So I am a CPA. And uh, to pass that exam to become a CPA, you have to have 150 university credit hours. So most people end up just getting a master's degree to qualify to sit for the exam. Gotcha. I've had I've had another guest, Amy, on. Uh, I think it was like episode 23 or 24, but she was also talking about how um, some states or let's just say most states have that college degree minimum to take the CPA exam. And so yeah. that's why she ended up getting her master's also. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. So and then what was the total student loan debt you ended up with after uh, completion of your master's? Yeah, so it was pretty light. And that's because I of the school I chose to go to and I applied for so many scholarships and I was a graduate assistant while I was in the master's program. And so I graduated with just over $15,000 in student debt, which was uh, low compared to what a lot of people have. And so I was um, fortunate to yeah, get some scholarships. And um, I applied for so many little scholarships. I think a lot of people just go for the big ones. But when you add up these like 20 different smaller scholarships I got, they were pretty significant when combined. So that's another little tip. People can do the smaller scholarships and not just the big ones. Okay. And you mentioned you were a graduate assistant. What, yeah. what does that entail? So that means that you are an employee of the university in addition to a student of the university. So um, if you, um, when you were in college, you might have had a, a TA or they're called TAs in the class where they might teach a, a lower level subject. Um, and so that's what a, a graduate assistant is. I worked in the writing lab. So um, yeah, so it's basically an employee of the university in addition to a student. Awesome. And so I assume uh, a lot of times when you are an employee of the institution, they reduce your tuition costs mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and they also pay you. Yes, so exactly. You're, so you're double dipping, you know, you're not just working in college, you're working for the college and now you're getting that double benefit, which is awesome. And yeah. to say that you ended at $15,000 at mm -hmm. the end of a master's degree, and let's just, and even if we chalk up the first four years as, as a wash. I mean, mm -hmm. two years of college with $15,000 in debt. That's pretty impressive. And that's pretty yeah. manageable. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And um, that was part of why I decided to pursue the master's degree, because I was looking at other programs that would put me in like $50,000 in debt or more. And that um, gave me a lot of anxiety just thinking I'm taking on all of that debt. So uh, $15,000 was manageable, like you said, so I could, I could handle that. 
But I just, I think that is so amazing that you were even thinking about how much debt, you know, cumulatively you would end up with at the end of this. Like you did like, uh, I mean, I guess as an accounting major, <laughs> it makes sense for you to do that. But there are still people who don't, right? They There's just definitely kinda... people that don't. I had no fellow accountants that did not. Yeah, so it's like, it's it's hard to say that, you know, school taught you to do that, but it, it's awesome to see that you were thinking about the entire debt load and thinking about how you're going to actually deal with that on the other side, because, you know, it's a part of that. I, I, I don't, I like to say that student loans are like the easy way through college. You know, it's hard to work through college. It's hard to work for the college. It's hard to do all these other things, military service for tuition or tuition mm-hmm. reimbursement programs. And there's so many different things that are a lot harder than student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people take that easy route, which is easy up front, but it's harder over the lifetime of your experience paying that back. So it's- definitely. Yeah. And, and that's why I brought up the smaller scholarships too, is because it's like the same amount of work to apply for a $1,000 scholarship sometimes as it is the $20,000 scholarship. So it's a lot of work applying for all of these different smaller scholarships, but the applicant pool is smaller. And so it's less competitive. And so that's a good way to kind of help people with the burden too, I think. Yeah, that that's awesome. That's one thing I like about Dave Ramsey. He's like, tell, you know, make your child, if your children are not going to work in high school, then one of their jobs should be applying for scholarships, right? They (laughs) should be putting at least two, three hours a day in applying because there are hundreds of thousands of dollars that go unclaimed every year for scholarships. It's because people put all of their, um, all of their, energy towards the big boys instead of just getting the little ankle biters that end up exactly you mm-hmm. know you take the ankle biters and you end up with fifteen thousand dollars of student loan debt and a master's degree so yeah. i yeah. i think that's amazing thanks yeah okay so you have this fifteen thousand dollars in debt was there any other significant debt at the time that you guys decided like okay we need to go ahead and start tackling Yeah. So um, we, I say we, because my husband and I got married um, right after I graduated from this master's program. So we kind of entered into adulthood and money management together. And um, I started a job at a public accounting firm and you have to drive around to clients all of the times. And I'm in Southern California. So I'm driving all over Los Angeles County. And I bring this up because I'm on my way to a client a few weeks into my very first job and my car breaks down and it turns out the transmission broke. I don't really know the car terms, but all I know is that the transmission broke. Right. And I had only received like three paychecks from this new job by the time that this happened. So I had no down payment saved, but I was like, I have to keep this job. I need a reliable car to drive all around. And so within like the first couple months of starting this job, I got a $17,000 car loan because I had no, no savings yet. Right. So, um, I graduated with only $15,000 in debt. And then a few months later, more than doubled it. And we have $32,000 of debt because I have this car loan now also. Okay. And that, uh, that again, that's not something that's very uncommon, you know, right. 
And of course, there's there's plenty of ways to rationalize it. Like, oh, I want a safe car. You know, I don't want a, a beater because I have to drive around for work. So mm-hmm. there are many ways that you can justify a purchase like that. So now that you have $32,000 in debt, you have a car payment and you have student loans. Mm-hmm. How do you guys decide that you're going to tackle this? So we, I kind of started reading about personal finance and, um, I want to bring up that despite my accounting and MBA education, I definitely had to self-teach personal finance topics. They, in college, they teach you all about how to run a corporation's money and budget, but not, they never talk about personal stuff. And so um, I felt overwhelmed by this amount of debt. And so um, my husband and I started reading about personal finance and we got mint the, um, you know, that app to manage your money and sync all your accounts. And, um, we didn't really have a specific plan at first. It was just take all of our extra money and throw it at the debt. And so whenever we got bonuses, it was 100% thrown at the debt. Um, we didn't even like let it sit in our bank account. And that was really helpful because that, could take away big chunks at a time um, and paying, of course, above the minimum payments. And we just picked one. We picked the student loan because it had the higher interest and we just focused all of our attention on that. And we were able to pay it off the $15,000 in 18 months. Um, and so that felt great. And then next we turned our attention to the car loan and it took us another 14, 15 ish months to pay that off. Okay, so you're all in for uh, two and a half to three years to get Mm -hmm. $32,000. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, so let's let's continue with the storyline. So you guys fight and that's a I will say that's a pretty long fight to get out of debt. Were you guys do you would you classify you guys as gazelle intense during that time where you were completely cutting everything or were you kind of living at the same time? We were living. I have never been the like gazelle intense um, type. I think I had mentioned that uh, with the two different households growing up, there was different spending habits. And so I kind of tried to pick and choose parts that I like from both. One was very frugal and one spent a little bit more freely. And so um, we were going out to eat at this time. We went on um, two big, like once a year, we went on a nice big vacation. So we really have always tried to strike a balance. So it's like, this is our priority, but we're still going to live life, enjoy life. We knew we wanted to have kids one day, but we didn't at the time. So traveling was, was a priority at this point because it would be harder with kids. Gotcha. So after you guys you know, knock out this $32,000 in debt. What is your plan going forward to that point? Because we we talk about Dave Ramsey a lot and his baby steps on the mm-hmm. show. It doesn't seem like you guys are really following his plan. So I don't want to Yeah, assume. no. Yeah, no, we, we, I actually at this point had not even discovered him. I only mentioned Dave Ramsey because the more I learn about him, the more I think my stepdad is kind of similar or at least aligned with that methodology. Um, But uh, yeah, so next, after the debt is paid off, we unfortunately had a little bit of lifestyle creep. And um, we 
paid off the debt and I was still sending um, monthly um, direct deposit, or I'm sorry, every bi every, twice a month. So every time I got paid, I was still automatically depositing money into my savings account. Um, but other, but I didn't increase it really after we paid off the debt. I just kind of let it stay the same and I allowed for lifestyle creep. And I bring that up because it kind of derailed our um, other ideas. So we had ideas like we wanted to buy a house, but it didn't, um, they weren't really priorities that we had agreed upon and set like we did with the debt. So it was kind of like this idea and I think it's really powerful to specify something as a goal at, with a timeline, because that's when you get more serious about it. And so we were not serious for about two years and we were going out to eat and going on bigger and more frequent vacations um, for a couple years. And then we wanted to buy a house. My mom is a real estate agent. So she was really kind of like pushing, like, you should buy a house. Um, and so in 2016, we bought a house um, for, yeah, we bought a house with three a 3% down payment, which is like so low, right? Like we only had a $20,000 down payment in Southern California, which is like nothing. And um, so then we had this big mortgage to take care of. And that was kind of a like shock to our system. Like, okay, I guess we better slow down our spending because now our mortgage at this point was twice as much as the rent we had been used to. Oh, that's that was actually my follow up question was, did your living expenses go up? Because a lot of times people think, you know what, it costs the same to rent and it costs the same to buy. So why not just buy? But then they don't realize all of the hidden costs that comes yeah. with owning like property taxes, insurance, HOAs. I yeah. mean, yeah. Huh. All of that stuff. Yeah. So we, yeah, between um, when I say that our new mortgage payment was twice as much as the rent, I'm including the monthly amount for um, property taxes and homeowners insurance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you guys, so again, I, I hate to, I, I'm not, I'm really not trying to like advertise you, but mm -hmm. like everything you're doing, these are common mistakes that I think a lot of people make. For example, yeah. the lifestyle creep, you know, it's very easy, especially if you and your husband have been fighting and clawing for three years to knock out over $30,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, uh, deserved that you kind of let down your shoulders and say, Yes. Totally. Yeah. We're, we were like, oh, we, you know, we're throwing as much as we could at the debt um, while still having a somewhat balanced lifestyle, like we talked about. But um, we totally felt like, oh, now we deserve this. You know, we deserve to go out to eat as often as we want instead of trying to stick to like our monthly goal of how much to go out to eat. And um, I think when people, do that. It's not that you're not deserving of some sort of reward, but you just have to be cognizant of like, what are the financial impacts of these frequent like treats to yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I 100% agree with that. I think everything, everything is bad if you do not moderate it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, whether okay. that's candy or spending. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Candy or spending. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys buy this house. Let's go ahead and get into that a little bit because <clears throat> I, I'm really intrigued by your choice of home purchase. Yeah. So you mentioned you kind of allude to this on your profile. So 
you mentioned that you purchased uh, an older home, let's call it. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, we can call it historic because it is a registered historic house. That's how old it is. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> was that the only thing you guys could afford? Was that um, intentional? What, what was the motivation behind that? Yeah. So it was um, pretty much the only thing we could afford. So um, like I mentioned, we're, we're living in Southern California, we're in Orange County. And so it's, everything is so expensive here. And um, my grandparents and my mom have always been very involved in real estate. My mom actually works for my, my grandparents' real estate company. And so they have this philosophy of um, kind of like always buying a house with good bones, which um, my grandma uses that phrase, and she means a good layout. Um, and then everything else can be fixed or modified, but changing the layout of a house is, is like the most expensive thing you can do. So when we found this house, it was so, so beat up. Like literally we walked up and I was looking at my mom who arranged this whole showing, like, are you, are you serious? This house is a total dump because the, ex the exterior paint is like chipping off. Like you could just rub your hand down the stucco and like big sheets of paint were just falling off. And, um, the, uh, the people who were selling the house or currently living in the house did not uh, clean up like it was a mess. And there's this big, ugly, outdated looking furniture that didn't even fit the room, et cetera. And so it didn't show well. And so my um, I was not interested in it, but my real estate family was like, no, look past this. You can repaint. You can redecorate. You can refinish the floors. These are easy things to fix. And other people, a lot of other people can't see past that, you know, and it was like the ugliest house on this nice looking street. And um, I saw that as an eyesore. And my mom was like, no, this is great. You want to buy the ugliest house on the street because the um, when you turn around to sell your house later, they use comps or comparisons. So when a neighbor house sells for a lot of money, then that increases your home value. So being the ugliest house on the street is kind of a good strategy, especially if you plan on fixing it up. Yeah, so that's think, a very roundabout way to say how we ended up in this house. <laughs> no, but I think that that's great advice for people who are going to be buying a house, because the thing is, you never want to buy the best house in the best area. Why? Because your, your upside is so much lower than if you get something that is cosmetically unappealing. Mm -hmm. And because cosmetics, I think people are uh, very afraid of cosmetic work when it comes to home, like painting or mm -hmm. hardware or you know, having good bones now, mm -hmm. having good studs, having good wall, load bearing mm -hmm. walls, having good electrical. And these are all very expensive yeah. things, but things like paint or even old furniture, old appliances, these are mm -hmm. things that are, um, they should be overlooked, especially if it's a ugly house in mm -hmm. the nicest neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't say we're in like the nicest neighborhood, but we're in a nice, certainly nice enough neighborhood. And um, it's a nice, nice street that we're on. And so have you, uh, how has improving that home affected your overall net worth? 
So um, our first, I want to just frankly admit that because we bought the house in 2016 and the housing market has increased so much that just owning the house and literally doing nothing has increased our net worth. So I would like to first have that dis honest disclaimer there, but we have done a lot of um, remodel projects, um, but not, but ones that we could afford and we did it as um, we could save for it. So um, we completely remodeled the backyard. We like, it had all these broken pavers and we ripped all that out, laid down new concrete, new landscaping. And then we did a similar thing in the front yard. Of course, uh, the first thing we did was address the uh, chipping stucco and we repainted. We picked a nice color that goes with the architecture of the house um, as opposed to it was this like gray yellow color before um, and then as time and as our money has allowed we've done other remodel projects like refinished um, certain wood details and the floors and etc um, and I feel that all of this has has really increased our net worth because now we are not the ugliest house on the street. Now we kind of fit in better. When we go over to neighbors, our house looks more like theirs. So now basically we've brought up um, the value of our house and the way our house looks and it, it matches the street. And so that definitely adds to our, our net worth and my real estate family. And if you look on, um, you know, Zillow or Redfin or any of those tools, we, a conservative estimate would be that since 2016, our home values increased by like $300,000. So that's been a good investment for us, but um, you really have to like sit on a house and kind of buy a fixer upper, like we specified to see a house as really an investment. I think if people who try to flip houses fast, that's where it gets dangerous. Mm -hmm. And what you're kind of describing, there's a term for it, it's called a live-in flip, even though um, you guys might not be intentionally trying to flip it, but buying the rundown house, living there mm -hmm. and um, fixing it up, you know, building equity. And of course, like you said, the market has gone absolutely bananas, especially in mm -hmm. the last three years. Yeah. But even then, um, even if the market had not done crazy, I'm sure that the value would have still gone up with all the renovations you guys have put in. Yeah, and, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the great benefit is when you live there now, if you sell it, if you since you've lived there two of the last five years, if you guys do end up selling it in the near future, all of that gained equity you're going to get as tax free profit. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's another yeah. benefit of actually living there, you know, living in a construction zone, you get the tax yeah. benefits. Yeah, but. yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And it hasn't been luckily that much of a construction zone on the inside, or at least pretty short periods of time. So like I said, with the whole good bones um, thought process is we have a few replacement things like we've replaced appliances, but we've never had like big kitchen remodels or anything like that, where it's like a true construction zone. So luckily we haven't had to really do those projects. Gotcha. Okay. So you guys buy this house. I know we're kind of jumping around a whole lot, <laughs> but you guys buy this house. It ends up in the long term, it ends up being a good buy, but in the short mm -hmm. term, it was kind of constraining on you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when we first, um, 
moved in, we had, and we had a little bit higher of an interest rate too, because that was in 2016. And of course the interest rates really dropped in 2020, 2021 and the, the first part of this year. Um, and so we felt more strapped for cash, but as soon as the interest rates dropped, we refinanced for a lower rate. And um, that ended up saving us, I think like $400 a month once we were able to refinance for a lower rate. And of course we had a, a little bit lower of a principal by then too, because we had been paying our mortgage on time, of course. So that helped too. And I think some people kind of view refinancing as this opportunity to like cash out or, you know, get money out, but it of course should also be seen as a way to lower your um, monthly payment if that's something that's desirable. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of I, I have a quite a bit of equity in a couple of my properties. Mm -hmm. uh, by a couple, I mean, two, I only own three. But <laughs> I haven't um, with the real estate market going crazy. I haven't had the desire to really pull any equity out just because mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's uh, I think there's a balance between wanting to be, you know, completely leveraged out of your butt or mm -hmm. having a little bit of security just in case the market fluctuates um, in the coming years. So totally, totally. But I think you are a person who's disciplined with their finances. So of course you would have that sort of methodology. I think other people might get those flyers in the mail about like, oh, $50,000 cash out, you know, cause they get, they send those out so much, especially when the rates were lower that um, I know of some other people that have been tempted or even taking advantage of that. So it's but I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's just a, um, it's one of those things you have to weigh the costs and the benefits. Right. Right. Comes. Yeah. So do you guys plan on paying off your mortgage early or is that something that you're kind of just, you'll hang it around for now, maybe get aggressive with it later or what's your philosophy yeah. on that? So, um, yeah, kind of hang it around for now, pay it off, be, get aggressive with it later, like you said. So we were able to refinance for a lower rate. And so now it's totally low interest debt. So instead, we're focusing on investing and um, starting a 529 account and investing in that for our kids. Um, so yeah, it's not a priority for us right now because it's a low interest debt. Now, once we have, um, even more in our investments accounts, maybe that'll switch, but, um, for the foreseeable future, we're not interested in paying it off aggressively. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if you do, you do, you don't, you don't there, but I think they're both pretty good options at this point. Yeah, they, they are. Luckily it's like, you know what's the better option for us kind of choice as opposed to a good and bad choice. Exactly. Exactly. So another thing that you allude to on your Instagram, which I kind of, I really want to talk about because it is so, it is such a conflicting argument that happens um, in the financial independence community, which uh -huh. is you cutting back on working. Yeah. Now, a lot of times um, we, well, we both know, and uh, the listeners understand the power of compound interest and they understand, mm -hmm. you know, the more work you put in now, the less work you have to put in later. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. you've decided to instead to use your current financial, uh, let's what word to use your current financial well-being 
to step back and work less to have more family time. So can you talk about how you came to that decision instead of kind of going extremely gung-ho now to retire earlier? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. And I'm glad we are because it is such a hot topic. It seems like so many people in the FIRE, you know, financial independence retire early community are just like put all your effort and everything you can into investing and I and you know so that you can retire early and I think that that is great but that's not for everyone and um we my husband and I don't feel like that's for us and the reason is is because we have two young kids like I already mentioned and we just want to be home with them especially when they're little so in 2018 we had our first son And I had this like big manager position that I had just been promoted to. And I told my boss right before I left for maternity leave that I'd really like to talk to her about coming back only four days a week. And um, at first she was shocked and I was really nervous to ask, but then she came back and we talked about it more. And I kind of explained how you know, I'm a really good employee and I think that this will help me focus better as an employee and all of that. And so I was able to negotiate to be only four days a week when I first came back. And then I, um, later I took another job for only three days a week. And then I eventually scaled down to two days a week. And now I am um, just focusing on financial intentions and being a mom. And that is not something that is for everyone, um, but that is the choice that we have had. And I just think it's all about finding the balance and the balance that is right for you and your household. Um, A lot of people say personal finance is personal, and I think it totally is. Some people are going to have goals where they don't want to have any debt, like you brought up the mortgage debt. Some people don't want to have any debt. And then other people want to aggressively invest and retire early. And some people want to have the opportunity to step back when their kids are young. And I'm still keeping my CPA license active. So I do intend to um, use that and return to the workforce later. But right now, when they're almost two and almost four, that's just not our priority. Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up. The first thing is like, the fact that you were able to leverage your past employment history to, you know, get what you want. Cause I think, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people have the option or the leverage to go up to their boss and say, Hey, look, you know, I'd really like to adjust my hours mm-hmm. because, you know, you have to be somewhat of a high performing, high trustworthy employee in order to have that leverage. Yeah. Especially depending on in what career you're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of a big reason where I'm always telling people like no matter what you're doing, especially if you're, you know, in your job or doing something outside of your role, you always need to be doing the best you can. Yeah. Because this is the type of unforeseen reward that Mm -hmm. you can expect to get right you can you have the leverage to say look you know I'm one of your best performers this Mm -hmm. will help me xyz and this will also help you xyz if you are that employee that does the bare minimum you show up right before the time 
you leave right as soon as five o'clock hits, Mm -hmm. you know, you're never willing to help anybody out. You're not cooperative. You, they're just going to laugh at you when you come and ask something so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And I have over the course of my career, I have been in the position where people have asked me for um, modifications to their schedule or a raise or, or anything. Right. And they, um, when they are not a high performer and they come to you with this request, it turned the tur- the tables turn so fast on them because then it's like, Oh, well, you're asking for this, but I've been meaning to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. I need you to be the higher performer. I need this. I need, you know, I need this instead. Or it's just a no if you are wanting the employee to leave, for example, which I have been in that position. And so it's, yeah, like you said, it's so important to when you are at work, be dedicated, be focused, be a high performer. Now that doesn't mean work all this overtime and forget any sort of work-life balance. It just means when you are there, be engaged and give it your all. Yeah, I 100% agree. I don't think you should, uh, you shouldn't be breaking your back at work, but you should also not be a liability over Mm -hmm. an asset Mm -hmm. for the company Mm -hmm. and for your coworkers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you talked about how you have stepped away from work full-time and now you're working on financial intentions Mm full-time which is super exciting you know I think we all hope to be there at you know be building our own business full-time at Mm -hmm. some point but of course that doesn't come um, easy you know it didn't just happen overnight you know you Mm -hmm. actually worked your way up to getting to this point yeah and so we actually um we just started in November with financial intentions. And so I'm not here to say we were any sort of overnight success. I wish that was my story, but that's not. Um, instead, we I knew that I wanted to leave my employer and I knew that we were working on and starting financial intentions. So my husband and I have been saving money so that I could have this sort of like unpaid sabbatical to focus on financial intentions and try to increase the revenue and everything with that. But um, I just wanted to be upfront and honest that it financial intentions has not replaced the income that I had with my previous employer yet. Um, but instead we kind of decided I wasn't happy. I was having a lot of anxiety issues while I was there. And um, instead saving money and kind of taking a different approach. So instead of waiting until financial intentions was successful, we saved up enough to where I could kind of have this unpaid sabbatical to work on it and try to bring the revenue to be more consistent. Yeah, I just, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is because a lot, people are very quick to um, claim privilege or claim, they're very quick to tear someone down and point out all of the privileges they have without actually stepping back and saying, okay, wait a minute. They, you know, they didn't go on a vacation for a year to save up money. And, you know, if they're still working a lot of hours and, you mm-hmm. know, they're not just saying like, oh, Allie's husband's just taking care of her now. She didn't have to work. She, you know, her kids go to daycare. She's just at, like, I just, mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to point out the sacrifices and delayed gratification it takes in order to make 
big decisions like mm-hmm. quitting your job and going full-time on your own business. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you. Yeah. And it was a, it was a long planned out, um, effort. It was not, uh, let's just quit tomorrow. You know, it, it, it took us a year to, um, save up, plan for it, um, focus on reducing our expenses and having savings at the same time and launching financial intentions all at the same time. And, and you guys are still sacrificing, right? You're still mm-hmm. sacrificing, you know, living on a smaller budget and yeah. having to say no to some things. That way you could say yes to this uh, career track. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Allie, why do you think people need a financial coach? I think a financial coach is great for people who um, have anxiety related to money or just creating a plan for themselves, or if they just don't know where to start. A financial coach is like your biggest money cheerleader and accountability coach, right? So some people have that within themselves or maybe a partner and they don't need a financial coach. So I don't think everyone needs a financial coach, but I think there are a lot of people out there who would really benefit from it. So it's, it's just a helping hand, someone to objectively look at your overall financial health and help you um, teach you some basic principles of uh, personal finance and how to implement that into your actual real life numbers in your daily life. Yeah, I love that. I think uh, financial coaches get a bad rap because people pay for coaching and they think that their coach is going to give them the secret formula to know, mm-hmm. you know, to make the best Krabby Patty to become an overnight <laughs> billionaire, gajillionaire. Yeah, yeah. When really like, we're not teaching you anything that's a secret. We're not, right. we're, we're yeah. there for accountability and mm-hmm. mainly we're there to expose your weakness because a lot of people don't, won't expose their own weakness. Mm-hmm. And so that is our job. So if that yeah. weakness is in your budget or if that weakness is in your employment or if that mm-hmm. weakness is in your mentality, whatever mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. it is our job to expose it, to make you better. We're not here to just give you like I said, we're not here to, you're not going to be the next Mr. Krabs opening up, you know, uh, it's just, yeah. yeah I just finding think, that secret investment that nobody knew about, you know? Yeah, exactly. And they think that it's not only us that don't do it, but it's mm-hmm. also the guru whose course she bought, he isn't going to do it. And mm-hmm. the Grant Cardone course, the Dave Ramsey course, none of mm-hmm. these places are going to teach you that one secret that you did not know about that everybody was keeping from you to mm-hmm. make you a gajillionaire. So yeah, I think it's really, um, this financial coaching industry is so, um, similar to like fitness, right? So you, um, if you don't put in the work to get fit yourself, it's never going to happen. It doesn't matter how many personal training sessions you show up to, you know, they're going to be your accountability coach and check in with you and show you their tricks and things that have worked for them and their clients. But, um, at the end of the day, the person who sees the benefits is the person who it puts in the work, not just the person who signs up for coaching or personal training. Yeah. And it, just to put it right back on fitness, like a fitness instructor, isn't going to give you the secret workout that nobody else does. It's right. going to give you a six pack overnight. And they're also mm-hmm. not going to give you that secret food that burns 10 pounds of body fat. Every time you mm-hmm. eat it, mm-hmm. it's like, they're going to show you 
the same thing that they show everyone else. Mm-hmm. And but it's going to be tailored to you. And they're yeah. there to hold you accountable to make sure because like you just pointed out, you know, I give you all the tools in the world, but if you mm-hmm. do not use them, then they're they're useless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can get yeah. the same tools on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can get the same tools on Instagram, on Twitter, on wherever you mm-hmm. can you can find these tools, but implementing them to get the proper outcome you want is where I think a coach in any aspect, a business coach, life coach, I think therapists are coaches. I mean, we're all about just giving you the tools, but if you don't use them, then Mm -hmm. unfortunately there's not much more we can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's about um, the people who find, who have the most success, I think also sign up for a financial coach where they get along like personality wise, because if this person is going to be your accountability buddy and check in with you, you don't want to be intimidated by them or anything, you know, you want to get along and have a nice relationship. And so it's awesome that there's so many different um, financial coaches because people can go out and find the one that they um, can relate to the most. Yeah, exactly. I 100% agree. Ali, so what are some of your short-term money goals that you hope to accomplish within the next year? So our short-term money goals are to um, get financial intentions to a point where we can have a more um, consistent and higher revenue stream. So we are kind of putting, um, we're still investing in my um, husband's 401k, but um, I luckily have enough in my IRA and 401k where it's just kind of going to be on hold for the next six months while I focus on financial intentions. So our financial goals are really um, maintained for the most part and try to build the business. Um, after I'm giving myself through the end of the year to, to do that before it kind of switches back to a side hustle. Um, and then, um, yeah, then we have bigger long-term goals. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to point out, like, you're in a very transitional phase of your life. Definitely. And so it's really important that, you know, you don't have to try to build Rome, you know, while you're transitioning, you don't have to try to build a real estate empire or, you know, max out every retirement account while you're still trying to get this business off the ground. Um, Christy Wright, uh, part of the Ramsey Network, she has a book, Uh, And the title is something along the lines of don't quote me on this, but I will have it in the show notes, but it's um, the guilt free guide to life and health balance, something like that. But it's, it's such a great book, because she talks about like doing what's right, right now. Mm -hmm. And so what's right for you guys right now might not be to max out your retirement accounts or maximize your income. Mm-hmm. You know, what's right right now is getting this business off the ground, like you said. Yeah. And you have to be able to put down some plates mm-hmm. in order to spin the plates you want to. That totally. way you don't end up dropping everything. Totally. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are able to manage starting a business and working. And I think that's great. But us just wanting to also be around more for our kids is kind of where I was like, I'm juggling too many balls. Um, Some of these are glass balls, like the parenting ball, you know, where others like my career is a tennis ball. I can drop it for now. It'll and pick it back up. 
I love, oh my God, I love that analogy. Oh. You, have to, you have to prioritize. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's an amazing analogy because it's true though. Like if you drop your career ball and it's a tennis ball, you don't have to worry about it shattering and right. being difficult to rebuild. It'll just right. come back to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But a parenting ball is definitely, you can't, unfortunately, yeah, don't drop that one. <laughs> yeah, don't try not to drop that one because that one is a lot more fragile. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just too much to juggle. So that's where running the business was a priority. So those are, those are the ones that we felt that we could juggle now. And I just am trying to be really transparent about this transition. So anybody else who's aspiring to start a business can realize that, like, like you said, you don't have to build Rome, you know, you can take smaller steps in the right direction. It doesn't have to be like this massive, overwhelming thing all at once. Yeah, I can 100% relate to that because I mean, I'm, I'm currently juggling a whole lot of balls. You know, I have my primary primary job. I've got the podcast. I've got the financial coaching. Mm-hmm. I've got the real estate. And so a lot of times, you know, one might get thrown off and I just forget about it for a little while. Yeah. Like right now I'm about to purchase another property. So I'm putting the podcast on hold on, on, on autopilot a little bit for maybe mm-hmm. the next couple of months. That's why I've been, you know, working so hard on it now that way Uh I can put more focus on buying my next property and once that's done then I can shift Shift more focus exactly yeah Mm -hmm. but it's all about if I try to do everything 100% nothing's going to get done uh, yeah or you're going to be super burnt out exactly Mm -hmm. yeah so I I can 100% agree with that one Mm -hmm. so Allie what are some of your long-term goals for your finances that you hope to accomplish within the next five to 10 years? And what does the finish line look like for you? Yeah. So in the next five to 10 years, um, I hope to continue to be able to strike this uh, part-time or flexible work schedule while still investing and building our home equity and contributing to our kids' um, college saving fund. So, um, but then after about 15-ish years, 10 to 15 years, my kids will be off to college and, or even once they get to high school age, which is about 10 years out, 10 plus years, then I think we'll focus more on that, like maxing out our 401ks and doing some other investments. If it comes sooner, because we're financially, financially able to, that would be great. But we feel that on track, we're on track now to retire by our mid fifties with this pace. So we're, we're comfortable with that. And I feel like I, like I've been talking through this whole um, episode, it's, for us, it's all about finding that balance. And so we want to still be active in our kids' um, extracurriculars and schools for the next 10 years. So finding that flexible work balance is, uh, is what we're interested in. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a good choice. I think that this game we're playing life, it is a long-term game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not to be played for the short term. And we realize we can look at other people and realize the people who are playing for the short term, mm-hmm. um, they end up not exactly where we want to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that you have a long-term aspect and everything and all of the choices that you're making up to this point and going forward, aren't just to satisfy the short term, but really they're for the long-term benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. 
All right, Allie. So we're going to go into the final questions of the podcast. And of course, I ask these same questions to every single guest that come on. Are you ready? Yes. Yes, I'm ready. Question number one. Everyone has their own definition of what it means to have financial peace. What is your definition? So I think our definition is that you've already achieved financial stability or financial security. So you already are no longer worried about your day-to-day expenses and how you're going to pay that. So beyond that is financial peace. And I think that is where your investments or passive income stream have um, covered your needs part of your budget. So um, it's kind of like a very lean FI, right? It's financial peace for me. Um, Of course, beyond that would be um, where it can also cover your wants, but just financial peace is where your investments cover your needs. So now you're at a place where you're work optional, right? So you can work if you find fulfillment in that, but you're not forced to do it. So I think that to me is financial peace. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that definition. That's actually my personal definition. Once my passive income surpasses my necessity budget, then I found financial peace. And I'm very close, but I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. But um, I've also been able to find peace um, on other steps of the journey also. So I think that that's awesome. That's great. So if there are listeners out there that want to start building wealth and they have no clue where to get started, what would you tell them? I would tell them to first um, start by tracking their expenses. And there's a lot of free apps that they can download to do this. Um, I use Mint, Personal Capital is another one, and you can Google them. There's a lot. Um, I think tracking your expenses and really paying attention to your spending is always where you need to start first, because a lot of people look at what they're spending and are um, maybe not happy with those past choices. So you need to make sure that your spending is aligned with what actually brings you joy and or what is actually important to you. Um, And then at the end of that process, you should have some money left over, right? So your income minus your needs and wants should have money left over. And then that is where the magic really happens because that's where you can apply it to your financial goals. But step one is definitely track your expenses and figure out what your um, monthly allocation to financial goals even can be. Yeah, I I love that you brought up the fact that A lot of us spend money on things that we think we value, but really we don't. And I found the only way to really figure that out is to start removing things from your budget. Mm -hmm. You know, if you remove Amazon Prime from your budget and you don't miss it for the next six months, maybe you don't value that as much as you thought you did. Yeah, let's say you remove, I don't know, ice cream cones from your budget. And Mm -hmm. then a week later, you're like, man, I really want an ice cream cone. Maybe you can add that back in because you value it more. So I think that it's really important to go through your budget, figure Mm -hmm. out what you value and what you don't. Because if you haven't done that, I'm 100%. I can almost 100% guarantee that there is something in your budget that you're spending money on that you value extremely, extremely um, minimally. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's a great exercise. What you mentioned is just, if you're at all on the fence about it, remove it because if it brought you enough joy or satisfaction to your life, then you'll add it back. I was going to say, Ali, you could always add it back. Nobody's going to be like, no, we can't add it back. It's gone forever. You could always add it back. I love that. Mm -hmm. So if there's one thing you could advise everyone to avoid doing to build wealth, what would that be? I would advise people to um, get involved with high interest debt or accumulate high interest debt. So we define high interest debt as um, anything with 6% or higher interest rate. So it's very common on credit cards, some car loans, personal loans, even some student loans. Um, So if you have high interest debt, that needs to be a priority to get rid of it. And then if you don't have it, it you need to continue to not have it because that is just such a um, anti-wealth building. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to challenge you that on a little bit, Ali, because okay. it's a lot easier to say, stay away from high interest debt than it actually is because you can yeah. kind of, you could be walking down in the mall and fall into a, a, a JCPenney credit card, you know? <laughs> so, what are, yeah. so what are some ways that people can avoid Uh, falling into these high interest rate debts? Okay. Um, I think it depends a little bit on the type of debt, but we can go with uh, credit card debt because that's the example you brought up. And I think it's the most common. Um, So if you have a credit card or you choose to open a new one, like the JCPenney one you just mentioned, you should um, make sure you pay it off at a minimum at least once a month. So if so, that's where you have this debt, but very temporarily, right? And you pay it off before it accrues any interest. Um, I would definitely make sure people have some sort of budget buffer or like a mini emergency savings um, to help them ensure that they pay off their credit card each month, even if they have some, oops, I overspent at um, JCPenney's or wherever, you are still able to get out of that high interest debt because you have this cash cushion. And if you don't, then that's where you just need to make it a priority to to get rid of it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I was talking to Joey on, I don't remember which I have on so much. He's <laughs> our resident financial advisor, but he, he made a statement that was pretty awesome. It's like, as soon as you use debt to pay for something, you turn it from a luxury to a necessity. Yeah. Oh, and, I think I listened to that episode. I like that. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, boom, it's so true. You know, mm-hmm. you start with, you know, wanting that Victoria's Secret Mm-hmm. I don't know, a uh, bathing suit. Mm-hmm. And now you turn that from a luxury into now you have to pay that back. Otherwise right. it's going to start compounding and you're going to pay it back tenfold. So yeah. Yeah. And we really like that 50, 30, 20 budgeting model. And so if you, and with your exact example, shopping would normally go, especially for something like a swimsuit would normally go in the wants part of your budget, but minimum debt payments is in your needs. So it, it like quite literally in the 50, 30, 20 budgeting model moves that type of purchase into the needs now because it's your debt. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that, that is one way to completely ruin yourself is to start buying, start turning your wants into needs Mm -hmm. because that's going to rob you of most of your budget right there. 
Last question, Ali. If there's someone out there that doesn't believe they can reach financial peace due to their age, their race, religion, sexual orientation, etc., what would you say to change their mind? Well, first, I would like to acknowledge that I do think there are obstacles for some of those groups that you mentioned. And it's important to advocate and vote to remove those obstacles as much as possible. But today, while we have them, they don't completely prevent people from achieving financial peace. It just may be a little bit longer or harder of a journey. And um, that is where getting a financial coach or even just a friend, if you don't feel like you're in a place for whatever reason to sign up for a financial coach, then just getting a friend to be your accountability buddy and check in with you. I think that is um, a great way to just get started and kind of shift your mind mindset that I can do this. And I have this person who's checking in with me along the way to help help me in my journey. Yeah, I love that. I think that, you know, if you look hard enough, there's all you're always going to be able to find someone who looks like you, acts like you, and they're doing what you want to be doing. You just have to look a little bit harder. And I do love that you brought up, you know, we need to be able to recognize that there are obstacles that you may face as a woman that I won't have to face. But there also might be obstacles that me as a black man have to face that you don't. And mm-hmm, I think absolutely. that um, my only danger that I see with that, that if you, because how can I say, I don't want to be disingenuous when I say this, but you have to be careful how much um, power you give that obstacle. Because mm-hmm. if you give that obstacle too much power, then it makes the decision making power for your life. And I am yeah. a big advocate of I make the I make the decisions for my life. I'm not going to mm-hmm. let someone else make those decisions. So we can yeah. we can recognize it, but we can also decide to take the power away from them and find ways around it. Right, right. Don't let it become an excuse as to why you can't get started or why it won't work for you. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't let it make become an excuse. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I was getting at. Mm-hmm. Allie, this was such an amazing interview. You brought so much value to this. Where can people find out more about you? Thank you. Um, we are very active on Instagram. Our handle is Financial Intentions. We're also on TikTok as the FI Sisters. And um, we have a website to financial-intentions.com. And um, people can totally feel free to DM us on either one of uh, those platforms. And on our website, we have more contact us information like an email address. Absolutely. And of course, guys, you guys will not have to go far. I'm going to have all of the links to their website, Instagram, TikTok, and everything else linked in the show notes below where you guys can find that super duper easily. (sighs) Yeah, Allie, this has been so awesome. I really appreciate you coming on today and having the conversation, telling your story, and again, bringing so much value to the listeners, because I'm sure there are people that are going to be able to relate to you you know, maybe women that want to end up becoming a stay-at-home mom or even just mm-hmm. stepping back from their job. So to yeah, be able yeah. to and see- Yeah, and dads too, because there are some dads. That oh yeah, too. that's me. 
That's me. I'm the dad. That's why why I love real (laughs) estate because I want to be an active father when that time comes. But Uh I think that this is going to give a lot of power to people to realize like, wait a minute, I can go and ask my boss to drop down to four days and they might Mm -hmm. say yes. Yeah. 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 If they say no, you're just in the same position you are today. Right. Ask closed mouths don't get fed so ask and you shall receive (laughs) yeah 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 well thank you so much for having me on this podcast it's been great and you're great to talk to no you yeah the com the the pleasure is all mine but i hope you have a blessed rest of your day Allie. thank you same to you bye-bye okay bye and guys that was my interview with Allie. I really hope that you guys got some useful information. You know, I asked some, you know, out of the box questions because the way she is doing uh, this personal finance thing is unconventional, meaning it's not the optimal route, but it is the favorable route for her and her family, right? A lot of times uh, when you're in the, you know, personal finance community, you try your best to front load the work, do all the work up front and take advantage of the power of compound interest. But you have to understand when you do that, you end up having to put some things on the back burner. You know, everything is not right today, right? You need to spend your time doing what's right right now. And so her, what's right right now for her is her to focus more on her family and her children and less on her career. And we also talk about how when you are a good employee, you can go and talk to your boss and adjust your schedule to accommodate your life. You know, it's not their way or the highway, especially when you're a really good employee and they don't want to lose you. They're more willing to work. And that's why I always tell you guys, no matter what you're doing, you need to be doing it to the best of your ability, meeting every standard and blowing the standards out of the water. With that being said, guys, I'm going to be linking her website and their social medias and everything down below in the show notes. So you won't have to go far if you want to reach out to them. They're awesome. Like I said, I'm going to have her sister on in the future to hear her story and, you know, how it shifted and made uh, half of financial intentions. Right. So with that being said, guys, of course, I offer financial coaching. You can find that down below in the description. Make sure you follow us on all social media. Shoot over a message if you have any questions. I personally answer all of our uh, messages we get on social media. So you can reach us there. We have a YouTube that you can watch the show if you don't want to listen. You can subscribe to us there. We're all Gen Z Money Podcasts everywhere. And of course, all of that is down in the show notes. And make sure you guys rate the show and leave a review. It really helps out the show. I don't think you guys understand the power that ratings and reviews do for small shows like this. So I hope you guys are enjoying and sharing it. But I'm going to get up out of here, guys. I'm your host, James Bowman. And always remember, you're only as secure as your ability to perform. So spend your life accumulating assets that can perform for you. Later, guys.